John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, one of the most significant, if not the most significant, teachings of Jesus. And we're going to get into that this morning. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, and this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Now let's go on. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged, and he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, And men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Lord, oh, to be there with Nicodemus on that night. And yet you have seen fit to bring these words before us today. You have seen fit, Father, to speak these words of truth again and again and again across 2,000 years that everybody might hear exactly what our Lord said to Nicodemus. And I pray these words, Father, would not be lost because of familiarity. I pray, Father, they will dig deep into our hearts and we will hear your heart. And Father, I pray that there will be new birth because of this. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, they called it the Great Awakening. Perhaps you're familiar with this. Cheryl and I were laughing about this last night, that just this week in school, she was teaching about the Great Awakening with the kids. I didn't know that, and she didn't know I was going to talk about it a little bit this morning. 
But it took place over two decades, from about 1727 to 1747. Get those dates in your minds. It's interesting. The Great Awakening among the colonies here in America. A massive moving of the Spirit of God took place. It resulted in a quantum leap forward in both the life of the church and colonial America. The Great Awakening reshaped the moral, the social, and the religious landscape of the colonies. I mean, it changed things radically. And note this, it was just a couple of decades prior to the writing of our Constitution. Think there's a connection? Think perhaps there was an impact of what the Spirit of God was doing in these colonies at that time, leading up to the formation of America? Gang, Western Christian culture, even today over 200 years later, is deeply rooted in what took place in the Great Awakening. 50,000 people were born again in those years. Now that may not seem like a whole lot to you, but when you compare it to the population base at the time, 250,000 in the colonies, 50,000 came to new life in Jesus. One in every five people gave their lives to the Lord. Can you imagine what would happen if that took place today? The change in the social fabric of our nation? Well, in the Great Awakening, at the helm, perhaps more than anybody else among men, was a man by the name of George Whitfield. George Whitfield, an Englishman, sailed across the Atlantic so many times, he literally spent two years on the sea. He would spend nine years in America preaching and, and teaching the gospel. And he never once preached a sermon without including this simple phrase. You must be born again. You must be born again. But Jesus said it first. As I've already said, John chapter 3 contains what may be the most important single teaching of Jesus. Isn't it fascinating that it wasn't before a crowd of 50,000? This amazingly important fundamental teaching to our faith was given to one guy on one night in Jerusalem away from the noise and the crowds and the busyness an evening interview with Nicodemus but I think to understand this we need to get a running start so go back to chapter 2 verse 23 which says when he was in Jerusalem Jesus that is at the Passover during the feast many believed in his name observing his signs which he was doing But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Why didn't Jesus entrust himself to them at that time? I mean, he had them in the palm of his hand. Literally, they were hanging on every miracle. They were watching these these signs of the evidence of their long-awaited Messiah, and they were believing, we're told. They were seeing what Jesus did, hearing what Jesus said, and they were saying, He's Messiah. He must be Messiah. And the people were all stirred up about this. Why didn't Jesus stand up at that point and say, You're right, I am He. There was a problem. He knew they believed in the signs, but not the Savior. 
They saw the miracles, but listen, they saw the miracles, but they did not see their need to be saved. They knew Messiah was among them. They believed Messiah was there, but there was no sense of we need Him desperately. There was no sense of we've got to change. There was no sense of we are sick and dying and lost. Not yet. And so Jesus did not entrust Himself to them. Wonders and signs can authenticate the Word of God. Prophecies fulfilled, we often talk about prophecies fulfilled here at the bridge. They authenticate the Word. We can see these things. We're amazed. We're impressed. And we can say, yeah, it's hard to disprove this book when all of these signs and all of these wonders have been performed over all the centuries. But while they authenticate the Word and signs can even inspire some level of belief, Signs and wonders do not birth a saving faith. The word here, when it says they believed in His name, is the same word that John uses to say that Jesus was not entrusting Himself to them. In other words, many believed in His name, but Jesus did not believe in them. They believed in Him, but He did not believe that they knew why they were even believing. Let me put it another way. He didn't entrust Himself to them because they were not ready to entrust themselves to Him. It's really hard to build a relationship without trust. I mean, that's that's fundamental, right? In a relationship that's going to last over time, there must be trust. Trust is the difference between belief and faith. Trust is what was lacking. They had the belief, but they didn't entrust themselves. They didn't trust Him to be their Savior, and therefore there was no faith. Trust says, I'm willing to admit that I need you. Husbands, can you say that about your wives? Not, I'm here to protect you. Not, it's my job to take care of things around the house. But, honey, I need you. I need you here. Will you help me in this walk? Husbands, your best, your best discipler, if you will, your best mentor, your best accountability partner in faith is your wife. And wives, the same for you. Can you say to your husband, I need you. I'm not talking about paying the bills. I'm talking about faith. I need you to walk with me in this life. A relationship requires trust. Can you say to Jesus, I need you? Not thanks for doing what you did. Appreciate the cross. Thanks for kicking the door open, but I'll take it from here. And that was where the people were at at that point. Yeah, they believed Messiah was most likely there. But they didn't recognize how desperately they needed Him, not to overthrow Rome, but to enter into the kingdom. Jesus said in Matthew 11.28, Come to Me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you, learn from Me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. But so many people would say, Well, that's fine for the heavy and weary laden or the weary and heavy laden, however you want to say it, that's fine for them. I got this. I I don't need the help. I can get myself to church on time. I 
take care of business. I believe. I got my Bible. I'm good to go. I don't need any help. You know, I don't think you can say that if you've been born again. Jesus knew the people believed Him for the signs. They just didn't believe Him for the salvation. So let me ask you this morning, do you need Jesus? Alfred Lord Tennyson put it this way. He said, Oh, for a man to arise in me that the man that I am might cease to be. Oh, for a man to arise in me that the man that I am might cease to be. Now, that was where the crowd was at. Not recognizing their need. I think Nicodemus did. I think he was different than the crowd. He was like Paul's description of the believers in that place called Berea. Maybe you remember Acts 17.11 says they received the word with great eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. The, The Christians, the followers of Jesus in Berea, were studying and in the Word and seeking the Lord and wanted to know every nuance of truth. And I think that well describes Nicodemus. He stands in contrast to the superficial sign seekers of his day. Well, how do we know that? Well, the first word in chapter 3 is a conjunction. Maybe your Bible translates it now. It should translate it yet. Or but. But there was a man of the Pharisees, unlike those we've just described. In fact, many believe verses 23, 24, and 25 of chapter 2 are an intro to chapter 3. Describing the people at the time, and yet there was a man named Nicodemus of the Pharisees, a ruler of the Jews. Nicodemus was different than those who so quickly jumped on the bandwagon of belief without trust. He went to find out the truth. He was an educated man. Part of why we know that is Nicodemus' name is a Greek name, and yet he was a Hebrew among Hebrews. And so there would be an indication there that perhaps he had some some good, broad-based education in his upbringing. He was a religious man, gang. He was a Pharisee. Pharisee means a separated one. And in Israel, in Judea and Samaria at the time, Judea primarily, the Pharisees were a group of 6,000 men separated from everybody else for strict adherence to the law, study of the word, and upright and righteous living. Educated, religious, and Nicodemus was influential because he was a ruler, the Bible tells us, of the Jews. He was among the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. So he's among those of Israel, broad-based in education, but he's among the 6,000 of the Pharisees. He's also among the 71 of the Sanhedrin. This guy is upper echelon in Judea of the day. And as we'll see, Nicodemus is one who is searching out the truth. It says, this man came to Jesus by night. Now, the popular view with the whole Nick at night scenario, let's just get it out there. (laughs) The popular view is that Nick struck out to see Jesus at night under cover of darkness, either out of cowardice or fear or concern for his reputation. That's been preached so many times, probably across the last 2,000 years. Yeah, he came to Jesus at night because 
Because he was so afraid that people would see him. The Bible doesn't say that. Be careful of assuming things the Bible doesn't say. Now, we, I, we do that from time to time. We did last Sunday when we were talking about the whole story of Nathaniel. We made some assumptions to try and understand the Scripture. But be sure, whenever you make assumptions, that you keep them in that box. These are just my assumptions. Scriptural truth just tells us he came to Jesus at night. It does not tell us why. And I, for one, think we know, owe Nicodemus an apology. If not, the benefit of the doubt. For him to come see Jesus at night was well-timed. No crowds. No busyness. He could hear Jesus. He could talk to Him one-on-one. Get some face time with this man, this would-be Messiah. Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 7, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks will find, and him to him who knocks it will be open. So Nicodemus is knocking. He's asking. He's seeking. And whatever the reason for this nighttime encounter, Jesus obviously welcomes it. Listen, it is in the quiet hour that we can hear from God. I'm really glad you're all here this morning. I am, especially on game day. But if you want to hear God, your best place, your best bet, is not on Sunday morning. If you want to hear intimately what the Lord is saying to you, your best time to hear is in the quiet place. It's when you're alone with Him, not with your, when you're in the crowd. Hey, the crowd's important. Great teachings of Jesus took place with the crowds, right? Matthew 5, the entire Sermon on the Mount was preached to a crowd. Thousands of people there on the hillside. But if you want to know personally what's going on, if you want to draw near to the Lord, do it on the quiet hour. Do it in your own time. Do it at night. Do it early in the morning. Go and spend time with the Lord because that's where genuine trust is formed. Bible study is great. It's important. Equipping the saints and all that. Being in the Word together. Absolutely. But if you want to garner genuine trust, an authentic relationship with the Lord, it happens when you're alone with Him. And no one else is looking. Well, verse 2 continues on. He came to Jesus by night and He said to Him, Rabbi, we know that You have come from God as a teacher. Now, the conversation turns on three questions that Nicodemus is going to either imply or ask. But before he gets to those, he begins very honorably, and I think honestly, addressing Jesus with two titles. He calls him rabbi. Rabbi doesn't mean teacher in the Greek New Testament. Rabbi means great one. Great one. It was a a, a title of respect. Now it was given to the the teachers, the rabbinical teachers, but it, it meant honorable one, great one. And so Nicodemus comes to Jesus and first words out of his mouth are, great one. We know, he says, that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Great one, and then he calls him teacher. But the word teacher is didaskalos. And didaskalos is a very specific kind of teacher. It is an authoritative teacher. So Nicodemus recognizes 
the honor in Jesus, the greatness in Jesus, and he recognizes that Jesus teaches with authority. He's not just spitting out words he's heard before. He's teaching as one who has a right to teach and a right to direct authoritatively. For no one, he says, again, can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus begins the interview with this question. Now, it doesn't look like a question. It's more of a statement, but he is fishing for an answer. He's asking, are you the one sent from God? No one can do these signs unless God is with him, right? Isn't that true? He's waiting for a response. Are you the one sent from God? That's question number one. Now, listen. Let me ask you, is his statement correct? No one can do this stuff unless God is behind him. True? I would disagree. Can someone perform the supernatural if God is not with them? You better know that they can. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. How about the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders? He's described in Revelation 13, verse 13. He performs great signs so that He even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. He deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given to perform in the presence of the beast. Antichrist is going to come along performing all kinds of signs. And there will be people, as with Nicodemus' statement, who are like, oh, well, he must be from God. Look at what he's doing. You can't do the supernatural unless Jesus is with you, right? Wrong. Beware of the signs. In our day. I mean, take heed. Pay attention. But if someone comes along and they're doing miraculous things, do not jump on the bandwagon like so many many in Israel did with no faith but with belief. Well, this guy must be from God because look at all of the miraculous things he's doing. Hey, miracles can come from Satan. They can be a work of the enemy to deceive false signs, false wonders. We're told about this. Be alert to that. You want to know if someone is truly sent from God? Are they speaking the Word of God? Are they lifting up Jesus? Is He magnified? Is He glorified? Is He the focal point? That's why Jesus wasn't entrusting who He really was to the people. They were all buzzed on the miracles. They were all excited about what they were seeing. And the signs can easily deceive. So Nick makes this leading statement, you've got to be from God, you're honorable, you're an authoritative teacher, right? And Jesus doesn't even answer the question. He cuts straight to the heart. He answered and said unto him, verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Born again. Ganao anothen in the Greek. Ganao anothen, literally, unless one is born from above, you can't see the kingdom. Now this is the stuff of the supernatural. And this is stuff stuff that is beyond the stuff of earth. If you're born... From above, that is born of spiritual stock. Not not this. Not the flesh. You've got to be born from above. Jesus' statement is emphatic. If you're not born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. You can't get in. 
This statement is so serious, it should stop us dead in our tracks every time we read it. And consider the weight of what Jesus is saying. You will not be in heaven. You will not see the kingdom unless you're born again. Well, that being the case, we better know what being born again means. We better understand this rightly. With this statement, now understand this, Jesus is not closing the door to the kingdom, He is flinging it open wide. Unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom. The inference is, you can be born again, and you can and will see the kingdom. But when He says this, He blows away several teachings that were core values in Israel in the day. Right at the beginning of this conversation, And the first thing he knocks off of its block is this. Heritage, guaranteed inheritance. Well, that's what a good believing Jew considered. Heritage, guaranteed inheritance. If I'm a Jew, I'm saved. If I'm a Jew, I belong. That for the Jewish people, a birth certificate is the same as a passport into the kingdom. If I'm born a Jew, I've got my passport, I'm going in, and Jesus tells us right here, that's false. Unless you're born from above. You can't get in. Well, wait, but I'm, I'm a Jew, Nicodemus might say. I'm a Pharisee, man. Unless you're born again, you can't go in. That's the deal. But the Jewish people believe that their Jewishness saved them. Let me be clear about this right now. And I've talked about this over the years many times. I know that all Israel is going to be saved. All Israel, quote unquote. Paul says that in Romans 11. I have a deep and abiding love for the Jewish people. You all know this. I believe there's going to be a massive move. There already is right now in Israel. The Messianic Jews are are growing in, in great number. Coming to faith in Jesus Christ, their Messiah. But understand, there will not be a Jew in the kingdom who doesn't come there through faith in Jesus Christ. Because that is the only way. There's no other way. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus says, John 14, 6. John writes in 1 John 5, 11, the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in the Son. In verse 12 of that same passage, He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. And at the end of 1 John 5, he writes, We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. Do you need Jesus? John says, if you're not in the Son, you don't have life. Jesus says, if you're not born again, you're not going in. The Son is the life. That's the life. You hear people say sometimes, oh man, that's the life. That's the life. And even the Hebrew Scriptures made it absolutely clear. Before Jesus, the Word became flesh, the Hebrew Scriptures taught that you had to be reborn. That there was no other option. Ezekiel 18 verse 20 says, the person who sins will die. End of story. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, 
Nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. (laughs) You know, when I was a kid, I liked the first half of that. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity. Now that I'm the father, I like the fact that the father will not bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. (laughs) The tables have turned. I'm like, you can do that. not my problem. He says, the righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. But here's the problem. Here's the issue. All flesh sins. And what the Older Testament teaches us is how desperately we need Jesus. The whole thing is there for that purpose. The law was given, Romans 5, so that the sin might increase. But where sin increased... Grace increased all the more. Do you need Jesus? The Jewish people didn't realize they did, didn't understand what Paul would say in Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and your heritage makes no difference. How many people here this morning, how many of you, show of hands, were born into a Christian family? I'm just curious. Okay, a good, good many of you. Guess what? It's not enough. It makes no difference in your ultimate salvation. If you're here thinking, yeah, but I was, I was Baptist all my life. Great. Goody for you. God's not asking. Yeah, but I was a faithful Methodist. Doesn't matter to Him. Yeah, but I wasn't like those non-Christian types. Doesn't matter. How many had just a good moral upbringing? Maybe your family didn't go to church, but man, they, they did it right. They did good, good stuff. Alright, guess what? It's not enough. It's just not enough. I won't ask for a show of hands, but how many of you had a lousy, brutal, sinful upbringing? Guess what? Doesn't matter. Your heritage does not determine your eternal future. Has nothing to do with it. Now, I am thankful for my upbringing. I am thankful that my parents are believers to this day, raised me in the church. I'm thankful that I was taught the Scriptures at an early age, taught to love the Bible. I thank you, Jesus. But that does not secure my salvation. Thank you for the knowledge. Thank you for setting me on the right path. But that does not secure me a place in heaven. Have you been born again? That's the issue. Les and I have talked about this so many times, you've heard him talk about it. He sat in church for decades, unsaved, thinking he was. Now, I didn't do that, but you know, Les did. (laughs) I so relate to that. How many of us sat in church for years and years and years thinking, all i got to do is be here. Just got to check the box, man. Only to start realizing it didn't work. And it didn't change my circumstances. And and I found that I was distressed, discouraged, hurt by the things of life, uncertain about where I was headed. you got to be born again. You must be born again. And so, verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Now maybe you've wondered the same thing. Maybe not in those exact words. And there's irony in his comment here. There's a touch of the absurd. But the question he's asking here, I believe, is is there such a thing as a do-over? 
You're telling me i got to start all over again? I mean, honestly, we like to think that there are mulligans. <laughs> and maybe on the golf course there are from time to time. And we, we used to shout, do over, when we were playing street football, street basketball. Man, do over! You know, if you threw a pass and a car drove by and someone dropped the ball, it was all wait, pass interference. Do over. And so there's something in us that wants to do over, but we recognize when we get 20, 30, 50 years into life, you can't go back and fix that stuff. You can't go back and make those things right. All of those sins, all of those failures... All those stupid things that you look back and you go, man, what an idiot he was. Glad that's not me. <laughs> and then you do it again. Is there such a thing as a do-over? Can I go back and be reborn? It makes no sense. Gang, even if we could turn back time and be born again, we would just end up a hot mess all over again. Jesus is pulling the rug out from under some suppositions of the day. The first supposition that my heritage uh, it, it, it guarantees my inheritance. As long as I'm born into a Christian family, as long as I'm born into Israel, I'm good to go, right? No, wrong. And there's another thing Jesus was pulling the rug out from under. And, he, and saying that you had to be born again. The second commonly held teaching of the day was that the kingdom prerequisites were nearly fulfilled. And Jesus came saying, they're not. The Jewish people thought, man, we've got to be almost there. I mean, just on the verge. Well, what were the prerequisites? There were three. Specifically taught in Israel in the day most Jews believed were necessary and two of the three they figured were a done deal. Prerequisite number one, the regathering of Israel. Stamp that one fulfilled back in Jesus' day. Your average Jew believed that the regathering that was talking about, talked about, spoken of by all of the Hebrew prophets, the regatherings happened, man. We came back from Babylon. We've been back 500 years. We're regathered. This is the deal. It's the age of Messiah. So they believed. Apparently no one read Isaiah 11, verse 11, where the prophet wrote, Then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with His hand the remnant of His people. He's going to do it once. He did in the return from Babylon. But the prophet Isaiah said He's going to do it a second time. And those are going to be the days of Messiah. When's He talking about? Right now. 1948, Israel became a nation. But more than Israel becoming a nation, and that is a significant date as we've talked about many times, but my friends, go all the way back to the late 1800s and track it and look at the incredible increase of the people regathered into the land. The regathering of Israel over the last century is the greatest miracle of our time. Absolutely remarkable. And it's increasing and it's continuing the regathering of Israel that the Hebrew prophets talked about was global, not regional. And yet in Jesus' day, the Jews thought they'd been regathered. Prerequisite for the kingdom number one, done, fulfilled. Prerequisite for the kingdom number two, 
the spiritual transformation of Israel. God's going to transform His people. And the average Jew on the streets in Jesus' day would go, stamp, fulfilled. We're regathered. We're spiritually transformed. They believed it. They had been taught that the great religious movements of their day, as seen in the Pharisees and the Sadducees, meant that Israel had been spiritually transformed and now awaited Messiah. They thought they were ready. They thought, we're good to go. They thought, like so many people who sit in churches today, it's all taken care of. We're gathered, and we're good to go. And meanwhile, Jesus is saying, you must be born again. Now understand, Jesus said, Matthew 5.20, I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So there was a sense of that transformation. There was a sense of that righteousness among the Pharisees. But Jesus also said, in Matthew 23, verse 3, all that they tell you, do and observe. But do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. And that does not sound like transformation to me. A regathered people. A transformed people. Movements come and go. Great awakenings can run across 20 years and then people settle in. Transformation is one heart at a time. I don't think God's interested in movements. I think he's interested in people. He's looking for individual hearts, one at a time. And sometimes one heart at a time comes in a mass movement. Sometimes 50,000 hearts all come to the Lord. But I guarantee you, in the time of the Great Awakening, the Lord wasn't going, hey, check it out, we got 47,000. What I believe was happening in heaven at the time was, hey, hey, guys, one more. Hey, guys, did you see him? Did you see her? Another life transformed. And with every single individual life, every heart that was changed, there was rejoicing in heaven. We rejoice in big movements. Things happening. You know? Programs. We develop and work out and draw people into. Not the Lord. The Bible tells us the Lord adds to their number day by day those who are being saved. Acts 2.47 That's how he builds his kingdom. One heart at a time, day by day by day, the kingdom is getting bigger and bigger, and we don't even see it. One heart at a time. The regathering of Israel, the spiritual transformation of Israel, stamp, stamp, done, fulfilled, and all they needed now was the arrival of Messiah. And so the people saw Jesus. And they went, Messiah's here! Let's see, we check the first box, we check the second box, and now the third box, we can check it and we're good, and we can take out Rome and become the kingdom that we were supposed to be. Now, I'm, I'm taking some time here to get into the mentality of the people, because you've got to understand how the words of Jesus smash that to bits. How it would be heard by a man like Nicodemus, 
who believed all these things were taking place and now we're on the threshold. And Jesus says, unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom. Well, then who can? Nicodemus may be thinking to himself or wondering, well, I, I thought we had been born again. I mean, I, I thought that I thought it had all taken place. And now you're telling me we got to start over? Now listen to Jesus, verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Break it down. What does it mean to be born of water? Some say baptism. Well, that's the obvious. You've got to be baptized and then born of the Spirit. It's those two things. That must be what the Lord is talking about. Well, there's a problem with that. And I come to you as one who grew up believing that. That born of water and born of the Spirit. I used to use it as a, as a proof text for baptism. You've got to be born of water. See? Jesus says so. And then, you know, and then born of the Spirit. The problem is this. Nowhere in Scripture is baptism a picture of birth. What's baptism a picture of? Death. You die. Paul says in Romans 6, verse 3, don't you, know, don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into His death? Therefore, we've been buried with Him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we might too walk in a newness of life. And, and some might say, well, newness of life, that's birth, isn't it? No, it's resurrection. Baptism is a picture of death, burial, and resurrection. By the way, that it, it, we talked about this on a Wednesday night. If you weren't here a couple of weeks back, we spent some time talking about baptism. And I answered the question, Rick, what's your deal with immersion? Why are you so big on baptism? What's the deal with that? Go back and listen to that if you haven't. And especially if you've never been water baptized, if you haven't been immersed. i got to tell you, and just being honest with you, the picture that Paul describes of baptism in Romans chapter 6 is of death, burial, and resurrection, and you don't emulate that in sprinkling. You don't. It, it's not a picture of death. Sprinkling is a picture of a light rain. A <laughs> baptism, baptizo in the Greek, submerging, that looks like death. And we need to understand baptism is not a picture of birth. It is a picture of death and resurrection to new life. Now, I don't think he's talking when he says born of water about baptism. Because he's talking about something completely different. Well, what's he talking about? Some, some say born of water has to do with the new covenant. That maybe, and this is actually there's strong evidence for this, that Nicodemus being a Bible scholar, if Jesus said you got to be born of water, that he would draw off of the Hebrew Scriptures, and so he might think something like this, Ezekiel 36.25, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you. Oh, okay. Water, born of water, and born of the Spirit. The new Spirit within me, that's what Ezekiel said. So perhaps, born of water and born of the Spirit has to do with the new covenant coming in. Perhaps. Possibly. 
And there are so many other interesting ideas. People have drawn out all kinds of things. Born of water, they've compared water to the Word of God. As Paul says in Ephesians 5, that we're washed with the water and the Word. So, oh yeah, so you've got to hear the Word, born of water, and then be born of the Spirit. Some have tried to make a case for that one. You know what? Call me simple-minded. Don't, but... (laughs) I think the Scriptures tell us exactly what Jesus meant. Jesus explains it. Listen to verse 5 and 6 together. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, born of water. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. The plain, simple meaning of Scripture is being born of water is physical birth. The waters of birth. And being born of the Spirit, well now, that's something completely different. He's plainly contrasting the flesh and the Spirit. You know the amniotic fluid that we all bounced around in once, low those many years ago. The amniotic fluid is 98% water. And some cells, and a little bit of salt, you know, to help the child cook. (laughs) Born of water, the water breaks, the baby is born. By the way, Cam and Jake had their baby. Little baby Ezra. Yeah, Ezra with an H on the end of it, it's a girl. So don't mistake that. Ezra. So keep your prayers for uh, for mom and especially for dad because he looks bad. <laughs> just just saying. Born of water, physical birth. Water breaks, baby's born. In spiritual birth, the old flesh dies and the per- person is supernaturally reborn. In that moment of rebirth, supernatural rebirth, you are tagged for eternity. Kind of like, you know, the babies in the hospital, you know, they put them, they line them all up in those little bassinets and they put the little pink tab on the girls and the little blue tab on the boys. They're still doing that, right? Pink tabs and blue tabs, so that you can know what... I, I have to ask, because in our culture, you never know. Well, let's go with a mauve. That, I don't know. Tagged for eternity, when you are born again... God tags you as His own. You're mine. We have, the Bible tells us, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of our salvation, having also believed, we were sealed in Him with the Spirit of promise. Ephesians 1.13 You're born again, sealed with the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 1.22 says He sealed us. He gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. There's your passport into the kingdom. Not your heritage, not your water birth, your physical birth, but your spiritual rebirth. Jesus is explaining this to Nicodemus. This is all the stuff of the supernatural. This is all the stuff of the Spirit. And as he explains it, I think old Nick's eyes are growing wider and wider. I think his brow is furrowed with perplexity. His face is contorted in consternation. Trying to get what Jesus is saying. Now, why would you make that assumption, Rick? Because of the very next thing Jesus says in verse 7. Do not be amazed, I said to you. You must be born again. 
There's got to be a look of amazement on Nicodemus' face as Jesus is talking about supernatural wonders, something that is far beyond the work of man. And the look on his face trying to get this, and he says, don't be amazed by this, bro. You must be born again. This is the only time in the Gospels where Jesus says, you must. Did you know that? He makes other commands. He's emphatic in other places, but this is the only time in the Greek language that the translation is spot on, you must. It's the only absolute if you want to see heaven. You must be born again. Remember John already wrote in John 1 verse 12, as many as received Him, He gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in His name. Note that, not to those who believe in His signs, but those who believe in Him, who look to Him, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Don't be amazed by these things, Nick. You must be born again. Now it's nighttime in Jerusalem, right? And they're sitting there together, huddled in this conversation. And I think right at that moment, can't prove it, total assumption, put this in the box of assumptions, I think a breeze came up. As often will happen. On those hot nights in Jerusalem, it's springtime, so it's Passover, but it's probably already warming up in Jerusalem, and a breeze comes up, and Jesus says in verse 8, the wind blows wherever it pleases. And you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nick, this is out of your hands, man. This is not something you can control any more than you can control the wind rising and falling. Any more than you can control which way the the storm is going to come in or the breeze is going to blow out. You have no say in these things. My kids often ask me, what is the weatherman saying about snow? They're not saying anything about snow. And and, and David and Naomi are like, Dad, tell them to get it right. Tell that guy we want it to snow. As you know, by watching the weather reports on a daily basis, they don't have a clue. We don't know where it comes from or where it's going. Jesus says, that's the point. That's the idea. This is out of your control. It's not something you can pharisaically make happen, Nicodemus. He's talking about the hidden work of the Spirit of God. The Greek word pneuma, the Hebrew word ruach, same exact word in the two languages, both mean wind, breath, or spirit. And the context determines the the translation, the explanation of it. You can't see the wind, but you know its effect. Hey, we live on Whidbey Island, we know the effect, right? Fidalgo Island, you've seen the trees down? You know the effect of the wind. You can see that. You don't see breath, but you can note the effects. I'm going to just let you all know this right now. I have an, a, a strong aversion to garlic. I just do. I'm just one of those people who, if Cheryl eats you know, a salad that has garlic on it, and I haven't had garlic at the same time on the same day, I'm like, you're on the couch, babe. I just can't, of course, I end up out there, but that's not the point. No, I, just, I have an immersion. And we were, we were in the fellowship, this is, 
This is a long time ago. I'm sure it was none of you. And I think John was leading worship on a Wednesday night, and I'm sitting back toward the back, and I'm trying to enjoy worship, and someone came in and sat down and just... But it was just rolling off, you know, coming out of the pores, and, Hi, Pastor Rick! Hi! I'm shriveling now. I could not see his breath, but I felt the effects. I'm like, can't you keep that ruach to yourself, man? We don't see these things, but we know they're there. We see how they work. We experience them. So it is with the Spirit. You know what that means in practical Christianity? You don't know where the Spirit comes or where it goes. So it is if you're born of the Spirit. What that means is where the Spirit leads, you go. That means you make decisions like this. Lord, would you lead me? Lord, if if this is what you want, then I will do it. Lord Jesus, will you direct me? Well, that, I mean, shouldn't you at least make a list of pros and cons? You know? Well, I know the Lord wants to lead me this way because the pros outweigh the cons. Hey, sometimes God leads you by His Spirit to a place where the cons are far worse. There might be one pro and 27 cons, but if the Spirit is leading, you know its effects and you go there. You can't see it, can't hear it, But if you're born again, you know the effect of it. Where the Spirit leads, you go with the flow. The flow of the Spirit. What is He up to? Romans 8.14 says, All who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. We talk about this, I believe, Wednesday night. The Spirit doesn't drive us. The Spirit leads. God goes first. And it says, come on, let's go this way. And it is, listen, it is a work of the Holy Spirit that you make the decision to become born again. Well, then why doesn't everybody become born again, Rick? Because while the Spirit is leading, there are those who choose not to follow. I guarantee you this. I can't prove it any more than I can prove the sight of the wind, but I know I've seen the effect. I guarantee you there are going to be people in eternity who will say, yeah, I knew. I knew God was tapping on my heart. I just didn't want to go there. If you've been born again, do you know that the Spirit led you to that choice? How many of you who have been born again know you're born again and know the Spirit led you to make that decision? Okay, well that's just weird. You're all a bunch of weirdos. Of course it's weird. It's supernatural. It's the work of the Father, not the work of man, not the work of woman. Now, if you're trying to work this out, you're not going to, because Nicodemus couldn't work it out either. What? How do I know if the Spirit is blowing this way or that way? How do I know if it's not just me? Or worse? How do I know if it's not the devil? Well, for one thing, like I told you, the Spirit leads, the devil drives. The Spirit brings peace. The devil brings anxiety. The Spirit brings joy. 
The devil brings pride. Mark the work of the Spirit by the fruit of the Spirit and you will know if the Spirit is leading you. It's actually pretty simple to measure, just like we measure the wind. Jesus said in John 16, 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on His own initiative. But whatever He hears, He will speak, for He will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take of Mine and will disclose it to you. Now we're going to talk about that more when we get into John 13 and 14. Sometime, I think, in 2017. But for now, just understand that the Spirit leads and always, always, always in a direction that honors, glorifies, and discloses Jesus Christ. And you can know that for certain. Verse 9. So Nicodemus said to him in his final question, How can these things be? In other words, I don't get it. I don't understand. How is, how is this possible? And Jesus says, Are you the teacher of Israel? And do you not understand these things? Now why would Jesus say something like that? I think because He's pointing out to Nicodemus that Nicodemus does lack a few things. That Nicodemus perhaps doesn't have quite the spiritual understanding that he thought he had. That Jesus is slowly, surgically, if you will, working on this man's heart to cut away the chaff and all of the, the things that he thought were true and to bring him down to a new place where he could be born again. Are you a teacher of Israel? And you don't get this? I was a teacher in the church before I got it. I was a youth pastor for 15 years and a pastor for another 5 years before I got it. I didn't understand this. I taught about it. I did not get it. I didn't understand what it meant to be born again. I come to Jesus in faith, 10 years old. I was baptized as a 10 year old. I heard His calling. In fact, what's funny is I can look back and I saw the work of the Spirit over the years in multiple ways and multiple times after I was born again. Before I was born again, I don't think I could have told you that. The work of the Spirit. Are you a teacher of Israel? He uses the same name that Jesus was called by Nicodemus earlier. Rabbi. We know that you've come from God as a teacher, a didaskalos. And now Jesus says, are you the didaskalos of Israel? Are you the authoritative teacher of Israel and you don't understand? Why would he say that? Again, he's working on Nicodemus' heart. But let me ask you this. Do you think perhaps there's a context for Nicodemus as a Jewish authority to understand? Or do you think that... (laughs) Jesus just showed up. And God, after confusing people for 1,500 years, now is going to tell them the truth. Listen to this. I'll read it to you quickly. In Ezekiel 37, the prophet said this, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and He brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. 
And He caused me to pass among them round about. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and lo, they were very dry. And He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, Oh, Lord God, you know. And again He said, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. And thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, that you may come to life. I will put sinews on you, and make flesh grow back on you, and cover you with skin, and put breath, ruach, spirit, in you, that you might come, might come alive, and you will know that I am the Lord. So, Ezekiel says, I prophesied. And as I was commanded, I prophesied, and there was a noise, and behold, a rattling, dim bones, dim bones, dim, dry bones. And the bones came together, bone to bone. And as I looked, behold, sinews were on them, and flesh grew, and skin covered them, and Spielberg has nothing on this. But there was no breath in them, there was no spirit, no life, no ruach. And he said to me, Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, O ruach, and breathe on these slain, that they may come to life. So I prophesied as He commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they came to life and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. What an amazing vision! And then Ezekiel writes, He said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up and our hope has perished and we're completely cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves. I'll cause you to come up out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And then you will know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves. What happened at the resurrection of Jesus? The graves were opened up and dead people started walking. I mean, Matthew's out there. I see dead people. Okay. I will put my spirit, he says, within you and you will come to life and I will place you on your own land and then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and have done it, declares the Lord. I told you I was going to do this, Nick. Nicodemus, a teacher of Israel. Studied in the law and the prophets. Everyone in Israel had every reason to believe exactly what Jesus was saying. And yet Nicodemus, one of the teachers, was sitting there going, How can this be? Israel and the world have no better chance of coming alive without the Holy Spirit than a bunch of dried-out, sun-bleached bones have of regenerating on the west bank of Jordan. It's a work of the Spirit, gang. It is never a work of the flesh. How can this be? Nicodemus is blown away. And we're going to take the rest of this teaching next week. But let me revisit this. The Jewish people thought they had it together. They thought they had done what was necessary. They were like good church people. They checked the boxes. They did the homework. 
went to temple, gave the offerings. Everything they thought by their work would transform them into kingdom readiness, but it wasn't what they could do that mattered. It was the one thing they could not do. You must be born again. Ironside said that Nicodemus came face to face with Christ only to find out that he had a tremendous lack. And that's the issue. It's hard to even want to be born again until you recognize you have a tremendous lack. And I have had conversations with people and I myself have been in that place where it's like, I know what i got to do and I do it. Why isn't that enough? I've done my part. Well, your part gets you from here to here and the kingdom is way over there. And you will not see it by doing your part. Only by being born again. So many people have a tremendous lack and don't recognize it. So many are this way. Good people, believing people even, populating churches, but failing to recognize the tremendous lack. I think, by the way, that Nicodemus finally did. That he saw his lack. That he began to understand. took him some time. About three and a half years. But he would get to that point. When is the next time we see Nicodemus? Fast forward 18 months. In John chapter 7, verse 37. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. A year and a half later. And there at the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus stands up in John seven thirty-seven. At the end of the feast. And he says, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And if anyone believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were yet to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. This is so great. The Feast of Tabernacles that year. Jesus, earlier in John chapter 7, said, I'm not going to go. I'm staying staying back. And he couldn't help it. He had to go. You know, he told his family, go on. Uh, you know, it, it was tough times in his ministry. Word's getting out. He's being careful. He's not entrusting himself. It's not his time yet. But ultimately, he can't stay away and he goes to Jerusalem. And he's there during the feast. And he's pretty under the radar, most of the feast, but on the last day of the feast, it's like, all right, I got to say something here. You got to come to me and the living water comes from me. If you're thirsty, come to me. He shouts out and the whole town comes apart. It starts to stir and buzz and, the, and the, the Pharisees are like, oh man, he's back. We got to do something. They send out their officials to go pick him up and bring him in, haul him in before them. But they came, verse 45, to the chief priests and Pharisees and said to them, why did you not bring him? And the officer said, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. The Pharisees then answered them, you have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers of the Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. Religious leaders. Nicodemus, who came before him, being one of them, said... Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? He defends Jesus. He interviewed Jesus first. Now he's defending Jesus. Now he's saying, give him a chance. Listen to what he has to say. And of course the Pharisees say, you're not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. And everyone went to his home. 
No slap in the face, Nicodemus. When's the next time we see Nicodemus? John chapter 19, verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission, so he came and took his body away. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. That's a lot of money, gang. Great expense. And they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. And in that place where He was crucified, there was a garden, and the garden had a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. This man interviews Jesus at night, defends Him before the ruling council, and now, at His crucifixion, after His death, is caring for the body of Jesus. He's one of two guys who showed up to do it. Not one of the apostles. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. What do you think the resurrection of Jesus did to old Nick? If in fact he believed and there's strong evidence that he did, Nicodemus would have, after the resurrection, been filled with the Holy Spirit would have been enabled finally to be born again. See, that couldn't happen until Jesus died and resurrected. But in His resurrection, that gift was made available. And we see on the day of Pentecost how the apostles exemplify that, the the filling of the Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit. Nick would finally understand, you know what tradition tells us, and I can't bank on this, but traditionally speaking... What believe, what people believe happened to Nicodemus was that he was kicked out of office and banished from Jerusalem because he stuck up, stuck up for Jesus. Some old traditions say that he stood up at Jesus' trial and tried to make a case for the Lord, and the Pharisees said, you are out! And they banished him from Jerusalem, but Nicodemus went on to be baptized by Peter and John. I think we'll see Nicodemus someday. Not sure if we'll notice Him because we'll be all gazing at Jesus. But Nick finally got it. What? What did he get? He needed Jesus. Do you need Jesus? Have you ever in your life recognized your tremendous lack? It's not the miracles after all. It was the man. It's not the signs. It was the Savior. And Peter says in 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance imperishable and undefiled that will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. George Whitfield was finally asked by a reporter who followed him around the colonies in all of his preaching, Reverend Whitfield, why in every sermon you preach do you say you must be born again? And Whitfield replied, because... You must be born again. (laughs) Only then, my friends, can we be confidently carried, led into the kingdom on the breath of the Spirit.
If you have not been born again, man, it is as easy this morning as saying yes to Jesus. Yes, Jesus, I need you. I need you today. If you have never done that, I invite you to do that while we sing this song again that we sang earlier. If you have any need, if you have been functioning in your strength but recognizing you have a tremendous lack, why don't you come this morning and get prayed over. And if you've never been baptized, the water's a little pondish, but it's usable. Come forward while we stand up and sing together. Let's stand.